You're listening to the Glasgow Times, normally recorded by volunteers at the Bishopbriggs Media Centre, currently being recorded from homes across Greater Glasgow. Please enjoy this week's articles. From the Glasgow Times, date Monday the 1st of June 2020, from the news section, East End Girl 5 races hundreds for charity, inspired by Captain Tom Moore, by Jack Hall. A five-year-old East End girl is getting ready to put her best foot forward to coin in cash for worthy causes. Poppy McLaren will walk 5k this weekend as she bids to raise much-needed funds for the NHS in McMillan Caring Locally, a palliative care charity. The Bailiston girl was inspired to take on the daunting task by fundraising veteran Sir Tom Moore, who raised more than £30 million for the NHS by walking laps of his garden. Carol Hill Primary School pupil Poppy has now raised more than £300, smashing her original £200 target, ahead of Saturday's 5k. Mum Gillian, 31, said, We were out for one of her daily walks when she turned to me and said out of the blue she wanted to help. She had heard about Tom and what he was doing and wanted to do her part. She's in primary one and it's been hard for her being off school. Poppy, who's normally an active member of the Girls' Brigade and Rainbows, is determined to do her bit for, for those fighting COVID-19 on the front line. As well as for NHS Scotland, the youngster, who says she's excited about the challenge, was inspired to raise cash for McMillan Caring Locally by Gillian's cousin, who works for the Bournemouth-based charity. Gillian, who is a pharmacy technician and married to 34-year-old Christopher, said, We're really proud of her and it's great she wanted to do this herself at five years old. It's really great she decided she wanted to raise money for those great causes. She's always wanted to help though and is really active in gymnastics and the girls brigade. She enjoys going to watch her dad play rugby on a Saturday when they're playing. Gillian added, She originally set out to raise £200 but it's been already beaten that. We've now set a challenge to raise £500 so £100 for each year of her age. We've been doing a lot of walking lately and going down paths we never knew existed. She's really excited about the challenge and can't wait for it. Poppy's just a latest local to raise cash after being inspired by Captain Tom. Earlier this month, we told of Rainfisher's own Tom Moore, who took on a fundraising challenge after seeing his namesake's efforts. To donate to Poppy's cause, visit https://tinyurl.com/ya26nk2y. And that piece was by Jack Hall. Airdrie reveal contact with Harry Redknapp over player development. Airdrie director of football Stuart Miller has revealed the club have held talks with Harry Redknapp about developing players. The former Tottenham boss was linked with a takeover of the Scottish League One side earlier this week after recently expressing an interest in acquiring a club. Miller addressed the speculation in a message to an Airdrie supporters group, confirming the club has spoken to Redknapp about becoming involved with the club. As you know, Airdrieans hit the headlines during the week in the national newspapers, he said. 
the article about Harry Redknapp was front page and back page news, so therefore I would like to update you on the background behind it. We can confirm the club have been in dialogue with Harry Redknapp and his representatives. It was a very relaxed and informal way of exploring the possibility of working together with a view to developing both Scottish and European players at Adrianians and then selling them on to larger clubs. We have other connections we are working on along similar lines. The approach was always going to form part of our development plans moving forward. From the Glasgow Times, date Monday the 1st of June 2020, from the news section. Glasgow City Council receives almost £5 million to boost efficiency of homes. Article by Drew Sanderland, local democracy reporter. Almost £4.75 million of funding to help make Glasgow homes more energy efficient is set to be accepted by Glasgow City Council. The money will be used in owner-occupied and private rented homes in a wholly owned and mixed tenure blocks in the city. It is part of the Scottish Government's Energy Efficient Scotland programme for 2020-21. The scheme's objective include upgrading housing stock, tackling fuel poverty and reducing carbon emissions. Councillor Ken McLean, City Convener for Neighbourhoods, Housing and Public Realm said this is very welcome funding from Energy Efficient Scotland. will help to reduce fuel poverty in Glasgow, supporting many people and families in the city. Better energy efficiency in our homes not only saves money, but reduces carbon emissions and contributes to carbon climate change. The programme supports the aim of making Scotland's existing buildings near zero carbon, wherever feasible, by 2050. It aligns with the Council's Affordable Warm Strategy, which aims to address fuel poverty, energy and efficiency and climate change. The Scottish House Conditions Survey 2018 found an estimated 72,000 households in Glasgow were fuel poor, meaning more than 10% of their disposable household income was spent on fuel costs. Areas and homes in Glasgow to be targeted through this funding will be those with the lowest Scottish Index Multiple Deprivation Ratings, in Council Tax Band A to C and Tax Band D in certain conditions, low income households and fuel poor households, areas missed out to social landlords investment programmes, and areas where people are living in vulnerable conditions to the cold. A funding criteria change means that wherever previously eligible landlords were only allowed one grant contribution, a contribution can now be made for a second property if the landlord does not own more than two properties. The planned programme of delivery of energy efficiency works will be reported to a council committee in August. And that piece was by Drew Sandilands. Celtic legend Jackie McNamara on life after brain surgery. Jackie McNamara doesn't fancy a return to management as he finds his feet again following a brain haemorrhage in March. The 46-year-old collapsed on the steps of his home and was rushed into surgery and an induced coma. Recovery has not been entirely straightforward 
with crippling headaches, but there will be no requirement to face further surgery. Unable to drive for six months, McNamara may opt for a return back to Scotland from his current Yorkshire base to oversee his management company Concilium Sports, but the former Dundee United and Patrick Thistle manager has no plans for a return to the dugout. He said, I was lucky I am fit because I think that definitely helped me. It does make you look at things differently. I really appreciate my life and my family and just want to enjoy my life. I don't have any plans to return to management now. For the most part, I found it frustrating. I miss playing. I think I always miss that, but I don't miss management. My sports management company is in Edinburgh, so there's a decision to be made about what we do next. McNamara believes that during lockdown, players will have had a taste of what it is like when their playing days are over. He said, this might have given some of them an eye-opener into what it is like when your career comes to an end. From the Glasgow Times, date Monday the 1st of June 2020, from the news section, Glasgow Project set for £2.75 million funding boost from Scottish Government. Article by Catherine Hunter, local democracy reporter. Almost £2.75 million is expected to be awarded to Glasgow City Council this Thursday to fund three community projects across the city. The local authorities expected to benefit from the Scottish Government's Regeneration Capital Grant Fund, RCGF, a scheme then developed in partnership with COSLA and local authorities. With an annual budget of £25 million, the RCGF aims to provide financial support to community-focused projects that will help deliver large-scale improvements to the deprived areas. Funding of £997,776 will go towards the Lawrence and Archies. The Milton Family Community Centre will receive £800,000, while Elder Park Learning and Community Centre will benefit from £950,000. The Council has worked with a wide variety of local organisations to develop these applications and projects. The Lauriston Arches project will see the repurposing of 11 derelict 19th century railway arches to create commercial and community use spaces in the heart of the Gorbals in an attractive and upgraded fiscal environment. The project, valued at £3.9 million and led by New Gorbals Housing Association, will continue the regeneration of this area particularly the Lauriston Transformational Regeneration Area. Milton Family and Community Centre, which is led by North United Communities, NUC, will provide a new focus for this community in the north of the city. The Council will assist NUC to deliver a new community centre, complemented by an adjacent early years nursery and office accommodation. The total project has a value of £2.2 million. Elder Park Learning and Community Centre will see the refurbishment and repurposing of the A-listed Elder Park Library in Govan to provide additional community spaces in the building. The project, which is also benefiting from the Council's investment via the Scottish Government's Town Centre Fund, will be delivered by Glasgow Life in partnership with Elder Park Housing Association and has a value of £1.3 million. 
Councillor Kenny McLean, City Convenor for Neighbourhoods, Neighbourhoods, Housing and Public Realm at Glasgow City Council, said These three projects will play an important role in their communities, providing a focus and contributing to the local economy and regeneration of the areas. The acceptance of this regeneration capital grant fund support means a key part of the project funding has been secured and these communities can look forward to the development of these projects. The funding will be discussed further at the City Administration Committee. And that article is by Catherine Hunter. Hearts announced 18 departures. Craig Levine and Austin McPhee have left Hearts following the expiration of their contracts. The Tynecastle Club have also announced the departure of 16 players ahead of the start of the 2020-21 season. A club statement read, Heart of Midlothian Football Club can today provide an update to supporters concerning squad and staff departures ahead of the 2021 season. Oliver Bozanich, Klebed Dekamona, Jay Nawanzi, Brody Strang, Craig Levine, Austin McPhee and Jack Wilson have all left the club following the expiration of their contracts. In the coming days, Donis Abdejaj, Daniel Bohr, Marcel Langer, Stephen McLean, Alex Petkov, Kelby Mason, Dean Ritchie, Rory Curry, Ryotaro Machino, Joel Pereira and Toby Sibic will depart Tynecastle upon expiration of their contracts or loan deals. The club would like to thank everyone for their efforts at Hearts and we wish them well for the future. From the Glasgow Times, date Monday the 1st of June 2020, from the news section, Glasgow Southwest Community Project hands out fun packs to families, article by Heather Carrick, Facebook Community Reporter. A Carmadric community group has been making sure that parents can keep kids entertained during lockdown by creating and distributing family craft and game packs. Don Barrett, project supervisor for Carmadric Win Project, has almost single-handedly been creating the packs, delivering the activities to 200 people within the Carmadric, Arden, Kennishead and Regent's Park. Don said, Before lockdown we had several different groups going to that that meant that we were able to keep in touch with families. We had kids drama groups that were full every week, a ladies crafting group and dinner group for those with additional needs. When you take these resources away, we know how difficult it is for parents to keep kids entertained, even more so with the lockdown where they can't get out. The kids were getting distressed. I think the parents were also missing some interaction that they would have had at the group before. Don launched this pack at the start of lockdown and has seen the demand increase from 22 packs in the first week to 91 packs last week. She's been creating and handing out the pack with the help of her family. 
I can't quite describe how much stuff I have in my house at the moment, but it's all for a good reason. I had one mum say to me that her daughter had been really down and the pack put a smile on her face. I had another, another telling me that her daughter had been in FaceTime with a friend and they opened their pack together. It really makes it all worth it. The packs are tailored to age and how many people are in the family. If there are five kids, they'll all get, get an activity. The activities in the packages include games and crafts, with crafts for adults even available to help those in need of a project. We always have to come up with some fun games, even older ones that parents can talk to their kids about and they can have a laugh. The adult crafts are always fun. Last week we made our own coaster inside the package with an instruction manual and all the materials, so there wasn't a worry if they didn't have materials in. The group also received donations of stationery and money from Giffnick South Parish Church and Inner Harmony Community Choir. The WIM project has also embraced technology to help parents during the lockdown feel as supported as they would do in person. We put videos up on social media, email the parents, just to keep in contact to let them know we're still here, just in different ways. The process is open to families who either live locally or attend a local school. We have worked with local schools and even health visitors who have referred families to us. Families will ask us if they can get their next door neighbour or family member involved. The answer is always absolutely. If you fit the criteria for our funding, then we want to help. And that article is by Heather Carrick. Neil Lennon, hopeful. Neil Lennon is confident the chance to help Celtic make history and complete 10 in a row next season will enable him to lure players to Parkhead this summer, despite the uncertainty the COVID-19 pandemic will create in the transfer market. Lennon, who will be without Johnny Hayes and Jozo Semyonovic next term after the Glasgow club announced yesterday that both will be leaving, is also hopeful that odds-on Edward will remain in Scotland for another campaign. I am in regular contact with Nick Hammond, the Head of Football Operations, and he has staff working 24-7 on looking at players, Lennon said. It is difficult as there are no games and you can't go and see players live, but we have an extensive list on each position and where we can improve. I am happy with the core of the squad and I don't think we need to make any radical changes to the squad. Our big assets are on long-term contracts and the motivation of the 10 might be a big selling point to bring people in. We don't know what the landscape is going to be like in terms of the transfer market or how long it will be open for or what clubs will have to spend. We are taking it day by day right now and trying not to predict things as it changes all the time. It won't impact us in what we are trying to do for next season. Everyone will start from the same position, but there are always deals to be done. Every club in Europe will be impacted by this one way or another. We will have to cut our cloth accordingly and see what is out there. There might be good value for money or free transfers or loans, 
If we can get Mohammed Elun Usi and Fraser Foster back, that wouldn't take too much integration. Boys like Christopher Julian, Greg Taylor and Jeremy Frimpong have had a season here now as well. Celtic striker Udward is interesting Bundesliga clubs in Germany where they have started playing competitively again, but Lennon is optimistic he can retain his services. He said, it is inevitable there will be speculation surrounding Odson because of the player and talent he is. He hasn't said anything to me about wanting to go. Whether that changes over the next while, we don't know. But we have him on a really good contract and we are in a strong position to rebuff any interest in him. We don't want to sell him. We are happy with him and he seems quite happy here. We are going for 10 in a row and that might be a big motivating factor for him to stay. We don't know what the market value is going to be for all players and we won't know until leagues are finished and we get an idea how long the window will be. From the Glasgow Times date Monday the 1st of June 2020 from the news section Letters Donald Trump will carry out threat and protests These are letters from the letters page With the whole world in turmoil and trying to contain the pandemic mob violence and riots have broken out in Minneapolis and spread to other states in America the main cause of the violence and riots are in protest over the death of a 46-year-old black man who died while in custody of the police, often an alleged minor offence. Sadly, criminal elements have used the protest as an excuse to loot and vandalise stores and businesses, which diminished the credibility of the genuine black protesters. This behaviour by the looters has allowed the unhinged and undiplomatic Donald Trump to make the retaliatory threats to the protesters, using a phrase from another era, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Trump is a loose cannon with his finger on the nuclear button who continually disregards world, world opinion. Therefore, I have no doubt he would carry out his threat to the protesters regardless of the consequences. RD via email. The riots in America of the death of George Floyd by police are just a symptom of what has been happening for hundreds of years. That man's life meant nothing to those police officers. This is 2020 for goodness sake. The coronavirus epidemic has to be defeated but the epidemic racism also has to be eradicated. A. Martin, Gladgow. The large empty void at the very centre of the UK government, otherwise known as Boris Johnson, is notorious for inaction. Former Telegraph editor Max Hastings warned us before the total leadership elections that Johnson was weak, totally unsuited to be Prime Minister. He has been proved right. Johnson's weak acceptance of the wrecking ball that Dominic Cummings has driven through his government's coronavirus policy reveals just how dependent he is on Cummings. But Cummings has learned arrogance from Boris Johnson, the old Etonian, that mere plebs can be disregarded. Ordinary people are there to be instructed in their duties. The elite, now including Cummings, are not bound by such restraints. That is for lesser mortals who are punished for breaking lockdown. We are not all in this together. Boris Johnson's weakness is sending out dangerous messages to the circling vultures within the Tory party, 
overrated to sense any chairman or indecision. Andrew Mulroy via email. And those were letters taken from the letters page. Call from Glasgow Evening Times, Tuesday 2nd of June 2020, Lifestyle. Meet the famous Hollywood heartthrob who went to a Bailiston school, by Anne Fotheringham, Senior Features Writer. Want to know which Hollywood heartthrob went to school in Glasgow? Or what teachers really thought about parents in 1872 in Bailiston? The answers lie in a fascinating collection of school records held by Glasgow City Archives at the Mitchell Library. Archivist Lindsay Green explains. Education was made compulsory for children aged between 5 and 13 in 1872, and most of our records date from after this period. Prior to 1873, there are very few school records in our collections, with some exceptions, such as the Glasgow School for the Deaf and Mossbank Industrial School. Industrial schools, explains Lindsay, were designed to prevent juvenile delinquency. Further legislation in the 1860s permitted the sending of juvenile offenders, as well as children who have no guardian or whose guardians are neglecting them, to such institutions, says Lindsay. The collection holds records for more than 300 Glasgow schools, and some for the surrounding former Strathclyde regions of Butte, Dunbartonshire, Lanarkshire and Renfrewshire. It consists mainly of admission registers and logbooks, which make interesting reading. We have some famous people in there. Our records include the admission registers for Whitehill Secondary, featuring Scottish comedian and actor Ricky Fulton, and for Alan Glenn School, attended by Hollywood star Dirk Bogard, smiles Lindsay. Matinee idol Bogard, born Derek Niven van der Bergade, who was famous for films such as The Blue Lamp and Doctor in the House, attended Alan Glenn's in the mid-30s. At the time, the English-born actor was living with a well-to-do aunt and uncle in Bishop Briggs, and he admits in his autobiography it was not the happiest time of his life. The logbooks, usually kept by the head teacher, provide a lovely insight into the day-to-day life of teachers and pupils. The teacher, writing the entry in Bannerman High's logbook on January 30th, 1872, was clearly at the end of his or her tether. Annoyed with some parents, mothers, who seemed to have much more skill about school matters than the teachers, it read, told them so, advising them to mind their own affairs. Admission registers, which contain information about pupils such as dates of birth, addresses, and in some cases even the results of IQ tests, are closed for 75 years, while logbooks are closed for 50. The archive team can organise for copies to be made once normal service resumes after lockdown. The school records, explains Lindsay, are helpful for family tree researchers. The key piece of information you need to figure out which school someone went to is their address, she adds. Children were usually educated at the school closest to their home address. And at Glasgow City Archives, we have plotted the location of Glasgow schools on a map so you can see which ones were closest to your relative's home. The archives also hold records of teachers, including lists of masters and mistresses dating from 1874 and teachers on military service during 1917 to 1918. 
While libraries remain closed, Lindsay and her colleagues, Neris Tunnicliffe, senior archivist Irene O'Brien, Barbara Nielsen and Michael Gallagher, have launched Ask the Archivists. It's part of Hashtag Glasgow Life Goes On, which highlights the fantastic resources available online during lockdown. Ask the Archivist gives people the chance to ask questions about a range of topics based on the city collections. More details are available on the Glasgow City Archive Facebook page. Next week's topic is World War I. Katrina Stewart says the 9 to 5 was designed for middle-aged men. A four-day week would work for everyone. Among the awfulness of the COVID-19 crisis, and I don't think we can talk about the positives without acknowledging the suffering, there has been much talk about how radical policy changes might build us a better future. Universal basic income is one such, a left-wing ideal repeatedly raised and rejected. The four-day week is another, fetid by some as the answer to capitalism's ills and rejected by others as a pie-in-the-sky dream that's anti-productivity. Jacinda Ardern is enjoying the sort of popularity ratings the likes of which other politicians might only dream and so anything she blinks at becomes headline news. Earlier this month, she was asked about whether a four-day week might become the new norm as an outcome of responses to the COVID-19 crisis. Her reply was carefully measured and lukewarm at best, but it generated headlines breathily suggesting that the New Zealand Prime Minister was considering the idea. What she said was, in fact, I hear lots of people suggesting we should have a four-day work week. Ultimately, that really sits between employers and employees. Similar occurred here when Nicola Sturgeon was asked about the possibility of a shift in our idea of what a working week should entail. It's an idea that's floated periodically and dismissed, but moving out of lockdown and rebuilding the economy will take agility, flexibility and the consideration of a suite of policy ideas. A four-day working week as a new standard should be one of those. Not everyone would be for it, of course, from an employer or employee perspective. One Glasgow nightclub owner asked his view on the idea last week said it was vital to get the economy up and running before introducing the fanciful notion of a four-day week. Stuart Patrick, Chief Executive of Glasgow Chamber of Commerce, is similarly in need of persuasion. There is some limited case study evidence that a shorter working week can boost productivity. However, customers are not always so enthusiastic if it involves disruption to their service, he said. A four-day week shouldn't lead to disruption of service, however. One of the mistakes when talking about a four-day week is the assumption that Thursday would be the new Friday and office hours would be compressed from Monday to Thursday. 
Negativity about the idea includes the notion that a four-day week would become the preserve of the elite, as only white-collar workers would benefit. That argument seems to ignore that fact that many people currently work weekends. That doesn't mean they work seven days a week. That means they take their days off on weekdays. Moving to a three-day weekend of Friday to Sunday wouldn't work for everyone and so would be entirely anti the core ethos of the suggested reduction in working hours, which is to improve work and life balance. The hospitality industry has been hostile to the idea, saying that its economy will take long hours to get back up and running. But surely people having more leisure time will lead to an increase in spending in restaurants and coffee shops. It will boost internal tourism and, if people do gravitate towards a three-day weekend, the nightclub scene could benefit from more people able to stay out on a Thursday night and sleep long on Friday. Britons are no, are no shirkers when it comes to putting in the hours. We work on average 1,114 1, hours each per year, four full weeks more than in Germany, and some of the longest in Europe. Yet we are less productive. Germans produce a GDP of 60.50 dollars per hour, compared to our 53.50 dollars. Case studies repeatedly show that when hours are reduced, productivity rises. Working a four-day week does not mean working less. It means working more efficiently in the time you have, less cyber loafing and more output. Cutting hours is also beneficial to the environment. When additional days off are spread across a business, it means 20% fewer people travelling to work creating fewer emissions and lessening the impact of rush hour traffic. It also, for offices, means the use of less electricity, another huge carbon generator. Employees who work fewer hours report an increased sense of well-being, better fitness, improved relationships with friends, partners and children. It's good for business and good for people. But a reduction in the working week might not only mean fewer days, but fewer hours spread over more days. It might suit some people to do a six-hour day, so they might drop off or pick up children. This is particularly vital as parents are being expected to participate in blended learning for an unspecified time period until the virus has subsided enough that schools might resume full-time hours. The modern working day was built to suit the body clock and circumstances of middle-aged men. It is outdated and inefficient. It doesn't work well for women or for current lifestyles. We have shown that workplaces and employees can adapt rapidly to change. There is no better time than now to reshape the world of work to suit employees. Proper consideration of a working norm that respects every element of an employee's life is vital and a four-day week is an excellent place to start.
Stuart Patterson. Dominic Cummings is either stupid or lying to us. An article by Stuart Patterson, political correspondent, published in the Glasgow Evening Times of the 2nd of June 2020. Boris Johnson says he won't sack Dominic Cummings and he now considers the matter closed. Dominic Cummings may think he is untouchable because Boris Johnson needs him too much to sack him. They are both wrong. It is not closed, as everything Mr Cummings now does will be subject to intense scrutiny. And even if Mr Johnson arrogantly ignores the country, he could still be pressured from people he is forced to listen to. Of course the Prime Minister doesn't want to lose his top adviser. Dominic Cummings is the guy who pens the script that Boris Johnson performs. He toils away in the background, writing the riffs that strike a chord with the public, while the swaggering personality is out front, feeding greedily on the attention. He is the Noel to Johnson's Liam or Johnny Marr to Johnson's Morrissey, with apologies to Mr Gallagher and Mr Marr. Nobody really believes that he took a trip to a picturesque castle with his wife and child in the car to test if his eyesight was okay to drive. That would make him one of the most stupid people in the country, as well as the most irresponsible. He might be a contender for the latter in breaching the rules he helped to shape, but he is certainly not the former. Either way, it renders him unfit for the job he has. If, and I am stretching credibility beyond the limit here, he actually did drive to test his eyesight, then he can't be trusted to advise his four-year-old son when it's time to go to bed never mind devise strategies for the Prime Minister. And if not, then he has been lying to us all live on TV. I thought the BBC had revived Jack and Nori when I watched Mr Cummings read from behind his picnic table. The last time I heard a tale as tall as the one spun in the Downing Street Rose Garden was when my pal George treated the class to an elaborate description of how FBI agents in suits and sunglasses stopped him in the street and confiscated his daughters as his reason for not handing in his homework. The only reasonable conclusion to the Dominic Cummings tale ends with a P45 being delivered while adhering to social distancing, and that means no golden handshakes. Yet, still Mr Johnson won't sack him. Boris Johnson relies on Dominic Cummings so much, I wouldn't be surprised if it is Cummings who dips his elbow in to test the temperature of baby Wilfred's bathwater. The Prime Minister and his adviser seem to think if they ride it out it will blow over and the media and the country will have moved on to the next controversy. He has a majority of 80 in the House of Commons and the next general election is so far off he will be thinking about kitting Wilfred out in a top hat and tails for Eton before he's popping leaflets through the doors. That doesn't mean Mr Cummings is safe. Boris Johnson may be the only person who can remove him, 
But Mr. Johnson may not be wise to dig his heels in too deep. It is not just an election that the Prime Minister has to worry about. The biggest danger to a Prime Minister this early in his tenure is not necessarily the opposition, but from within his own party. If enough MPs put pressure on, then he will be forced to act, and if enough constituents put pressure on their MP, they will be forced to act. He already has one resignation and plenty others who say Mr Cummings has to go. It's all about accountability. Cummings is accountable to Boris Johnson, who is accountable to his parliamentary party of MPs, who are accountable to their constituents. If you don't like how the Prime Minister and Dominic Cummings are playing the country for fools, make your views known. Get in touch with your local Conservative councillor or MSP and respectfully put forward your views. Dominic Cummings is a man who likes to shape the agenda, frame the political conversation. He is the guy who tells the Prime Minister what the public thinks and what they will respond to. If Dominic Cummings was being honest and was advising the Prime Minister what he should do about Dominic Cummings then he would be out the door. The Prime Minister is fond of military analogies, so he should recognise his mistake and order himself, turn about, about turn, then stand in front of Dominic Cummings and issue his marching orders. By the right, quick march. James Morgan reports, Grassroots growth said to be stunted by life in lockdown. The Saturday morning scramble. Where's the water bottle? Have you got your shin pads on? Mum, do you know where my rain jacket is? Mum, she's scraping a comb across his hair. Does he need to wet it? He's not going to be on TV, is he? Every Saturday. Every week, we wouldn't change it for the world. It might be a scene familiar to your household, whatever the sport, whatever the club. It's football in ours, and it will be a similar scenario in homes all over the country most weekends of the year. Of course, that hasn't been the case for some time now. The Joint Response Group released a statement last week with a date in the calendar ringed for August 1, when the SPFL Premiership will return. There was no provision for Championship, League 1 and League 2 clubs, or any of the rest, albeit Ian Maxwell, the SFA Chief Executive, acknowledged that there are hundreds of thousands of players across the Scottish football landscape looking for clarity on when they can return to action. It might not register in the grand scheme of things, but one group comprising part of the rest is grassroots football. That's 62,000 players, 17,000 volunteers and 4,000 teams without a game every Saturday. As it stands, the Scottish Youth Football Association is following the word of the government and taking its lead from there. As you would expect, 
The safety of the child is a paramount concern, and rightly so. Nevertheless, it makes for a lot of glum faces every weekend, and, with no finishing line in sight, encouraging youngsters to keep practising becomes increasingly difficult. Lockdown has provided them with the chance to improve, and there are no shortage of opportunity to do so, but the uncertainty of when we will return to action does not help. For many, the same, if not more, training is being done. There's the online futsal classes. The pre-recorded videos delivered straight to the mobile phone and everything in between. And at present, it is all done being done in the searing temperatures. These are reminiscent of the sunny months of my childhood, of endless football matches in the field at the bottom of my street, of refueling brakes powered by ice lollies and diluting juice before doing it all again the next day. A child's relationship with football is changed utterly from those days. Almost everything is achieved in a controlled environment and I am reminded of the words of Jamie Smith, the former Celtic and Aberdeen winger, who is now head of the Nashville Academy, in a recent interview, who believes that as a result of modern advancements in coaching and microscopic data analysis, we are in danger of coaching creativity out of our kids. Smith admits there are times when he would just like to throw a ball into the middle of a group of players and tell them to go and have some fun, just as he did, just as we did. There's not much chance of doing that at the minute though. Now there are WhatsApp groups, tests, video analysis, webinars and more. The granular detail of the programmes is impressive. Moves are game specific. They focus heavily on technique and clearly a lot of thought has gone into them. But, at the same, the creative element written into these programmes feels contrived to a degree. The mantra is one of improving exponentially, but the chance to measure that growth is currently being denied to our kids. The best way of measuring progress has always been by pitting oneself against others. Technical ability may be near flawless, but the most effective yardstick is when it's measured in a competitive environment. Nothing can beat that feeling of satisfaction when witnessing a child you have helped to coach play the perfect pass or the internal joy, betrayed all too easily at times by the expression on one's face when a training drill is replicated and a goal is scored. It is not meant to be competitive, but try telling the kids, and too often, the coaches that. On the one hand, it can be a negative force. I've literally seen opposition coaches kick shots off the goal line or station players in and around the side of the post so that a stray ankle might nudge the ball around an upright. You have to wonder at the kind of mind that would willingly deny an enthusiastic youngster the retelling of the story of how he or she scored a goal later that evening to proud grandparents.
On the other, it is a barometer for assessing group and individual improvement. Gamesmanship tells its own story. By its very nature, the game is competitive. The aim of the game, after all, is for one side to put the ball between a set of posts while the other tries to keep it out. But too often coaches are obsessed by what it means for them. It is not your own investment that you want to see rewarded, it's theirs. Often they have spent hours training, sacrificing free time after school when they should be doing homework or could be catching up with their favourite show. The idea that this generation is glued to games consoles is overplayed. If the evidence of kids engaging in focused practice on social media is anything to go by, then they have demonstrated a greater capacity for effort and achievement than often they are given credit for. Naturally, all the extra effort can lead them to ask why. The inevitable answer is that it will make them a better footballer, but the longer they are not able to play, that answer sounds increasingly hollow. If there is one crumb of comfort, it is that the SYFA has already started the registration process for the 2021 season with the hope that when youth football is given the green light to return, it does so as quickly as possible. The tens of thousands of people whose weekends revolve around it will be relishing the return to the Saturday morning scramble. From the Glasgow Times, date Wednesday the 3rd of June 2020, from the news section. Police launch investigation after girl, 16, is raped in Dosholm Park. By Stacey Mullen, audience and content editor. Police have launched an investigation after a teenage girl was raped in a city park. The force said the 16-year-old was subjected to a serious sexual assault in Dosholm Park on Monday night. They have launched an investigation and appealed to any witnesses in the area. They added that the attack happened in a wooded area close to the park entrance at Eiley Court. The park in North Glasgow sits in the Kelvindale, Maryhill and Temple areas of the city, as well as parts of Bears Den. A police spokesman said, Police Scotland is carrying out inquiries after a 16-year-old woman was seriously assaulted at Dosholm Park in a wooded area at a short distance from the entrance at Eiley Court in Glasgow at 8.10pm on Monday, June 1st. Anyone who is in the area and witness the incident is asked to contact officers on 101, quoting 4107 of 1st of June. And that piece was by Stacey Mullen. Hibs Florian Camberry, Interesting Clubs Hibs striker Florian Camberry looks set to leave Easter Road this summer, with clubs from around Europe monitoring his progress. The Swiss star had a decent loan spell at Rangers, making nine appearances and scoring once. Rangers have not slammed the door shut on the potential of making the move permanent, 
but now they face opposition over any move from clubs in the English Championship, Poland, Germany and further afield. One stumbling block is understood to be the lack of serious budget for many clubs around the globe amid the coronavirus pandemic. And given that Rangers did not secure a future fee in the initial loan deal, a permanent switch now looks unlikely. Camberry, aged 25, was previously tracked by Brentford and is understood to be interesting Lech Poznan among other top clubs. From the Glasgow Times, date Wednesday the 3rd of June 2020, from the news section. Shawland police incident, two men arrested and another in hospital. Article by Stacey Mullen, audience and content editor. Two men have been arrested after a 27-year-old was allegedly assaulted in the city's south side. Police were called to Shawlands following the alleged attack in the early hours of this morning. The force said the victim was assaulted in Kilmarnock Road near to Colstenham Road at around 2am and was taken to the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital. A force spokesman said, Around 2am on Wednesday, June the 3rd, Police received the report of a 27-year-old man being assaulted in Kilmarnock Road, near to Colston Home Road, Shawlands. Officers attended and the man was taken to Queen Elizabeth University Hospital. Two men have been arrested and inquiries are ongoing. And that piece is by Stacey Mullen. Glasgow Speedway off for the first time in 33 years. There will be no Speedway in Glasgow in 2020 for the first time in 33 years. The Glasgow Tigers were due to get their 2020 Speedway Great Britain Championship campaign underway in April, but fixtures have been postponed due to coronavirus. Glasgow Tigers said limits on the number of people attending events would make it impossible for them to run, while five of the seven-man team are currently overseas, unable to travel due to restrictions. A statement from the club said, Every Speedway club is different, and their own circumstances will be different to ours in terms of the size, layout and capacity of their stadium the number of average attendees they get at each home fixture, what their own rider availability is like, and geographically where they sit in the country. We send our best wishes to those clubs who wish to take part in a shortened season, but it's just not for us given all the challenges it presents. We are desperately sad that it has come to this, as we had a fantastic training camp with the boys back in March and the full team was ready and raring to go. The last time Speedway did not run in Glasgow was 1987 when the club, founded in 1946, found themselves without a home. They eventually raced fixtures in Workington, Cumbria, 
before taking up residence at Shawfield Stadium the following year. The Tigers moved to their current Ashfield home in 1999 and won the league in 2011. At the end of the 2014 campaign, they were taken over by the Pachena family, owners of Allied Vehicles, which is based on the same street, who gave the venue a multi-million pound overhaul. From the Glasgow Times, date Wednesday the 3rd of June 2020, from the news section, Nicola Sturgeon backs Black Lives Matter movement, but warns large gatherings will pose risks to lives. Article by Ruth Souter, multimedia journalist. The First Minister pledged her support to the Black Lives Matter movement, adding she has total solidarity to the cause. It comes as peaceful protests are scheduled to take place across the country and globe after the death of an unarmed black man in the US named George Floyd. At least 30 US cities have experienced protests since his death at the hands of a police officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin has been arrested and charged in connection with the death. In Glasgow, a Black Lives Matter protest is scheduled to take place on Sunday afternoon in front of the city chambers. Although Nicola Sturgeon told how she is a fervent supporter of the movement, she warned that large gatherings of people could pose a risk to health as the country still battles with the coronavirus outbreak. Speaking today, she said, I absolutely believe people have the right to make their voices heard, and at times like this, when we all look on with concern and horror at the scenes in the United States right now, it's very important that we do have the opportunity to speak up and make our voices heard. Obviously, right now, it is the case, unfortunately and regrettably, that large gatherings of people could pose a risk to health and indeed right life. Unfortunately, that's the case whether it's a peaceful protest or a football match or any other gathering where a large number of people are coming together in close proximity. Speaking as an ally and a supporter, the First Minister has advised those who wish to protest on behalf of the Black Lives Matter movement to make their voices heard in a safe way that does not pose a risk to other people's lives. She added, I know people the length and breadth of this country, and I include myself, feel extremely strongly about these issues, and let me say that none of us, no society, no country is immune from racism. All of us right now, I think, feel very strong desire to stand in solidarity with those protesting racism and to make clear that evil has no place in our society. I would appeal to people who have a discussion and consider how we do that in a safe a way that is safe, but also allows us to send a very strong and unequivocal message about the evil of racism that we want to see eradicated. And that piece was by Ruth Sutter. Playing behind closed doors won't derail Celtic. Scott Brown has vowed that playing Premiership games behind closed doors next season won't have any detrimental impact on Celtic's bid to make history and complete 10 in a row. Scottish top flight clubs are hoping to kick off the 2021 league campaign in August but supporters are likely to be barred from attending 
due to coronavirus. Brown admitted that having 60,000 fans inside Parkhead and a large travelling support at away games gives Neil Lennon's side an edge whenever they take to the field. However, the midfielder is confident there will be no drop in standards if the new campaign kicks off in empty stadiums and insisted Celtic can extend their record equal winning run. When the Bundesliga came back, I watched the first games and I have to admit that it was a little bit weird watching it. With the games being behind closed doors, you could hear all the lads shouting for the ball and things like that. It didn't feel normal. If you watch golf, and I do, you appreciate that's a sport where people aren't shouting and singing when the players are playing. There's no shouting and cheering in the middle of someone's swing or anything like that, so it can happen in other sports. But it's different in football. You miss the cheering and the shouting and the way people can push you, especially for us at Celtic Park. When there are 60,000 fans inside there, they can be the 12th man for us at times. They can help get over some tricky times and tough moments in games. And when you get that goal, you continue and go on and they put that faith in you by pushing and spurring you forward. They have dug deep for us at times and that has led to us scoring late winners or late equalisers in matches. It's kind of what football needs. It really needs the supporters. But don't get me wrong, we deal with it. We have to deal with whatever situation faces us. It's not something we haven't experienced. For example, in training, you have 11 against 11 and they're still very fierce and very competitive matches. That edge is still there because you still want to win as you play. It'll just be exactly the same situation as that for us and it will mean that games will be on telly so that fans can see us and watch us. The stadiums might be empty or they might be able to get some fans into them, I don't know. I'm not sure how it is all going to work but for me it's still a game and you go into it with that winning mentality. We'll want to start the season off strongly, just in the manner that we did last season, and that'll be the sole focus, regardless of the conditions in which we are playing. Whatever comes and is put towards us, we need to deal with it. We'll deal with whatever way it is safe for us to get onto the park. Once we get onto the park, the mindset will be to win. Hopefully, it won't be too long before we can get started again. From the Glasgow Times, date Wednesday the 3rd of June 2020, from the news section, Politio's Primary School Playground, Torched by Vandals, article by Heather Carrick, Facebook Community Reporter, a Shields Primary School's playground was set alight yesterday as fire services raced to the scene. The fire at St Albert's Primary School on Maxwell Drive, which saw a playground bench set on fire, was lit around 9pm. 
Fire services attended the incident shortly after. A spokesperson for the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service said, We were alerted at 9.12pm on Monday, June 1st, to reports of a fire within the grounds of a primary school on Maxwell Road, Glasgow. Operations Control mobilised one appliance to the area, where firefighters extinguished a fire involving a bench. Crews left after ensuring the area was made safe. Glasgow City Council commented on the fire, saying, It's so sad that some people have no respect for school property, especially at the moment when schools are closed to the majority of pupils. This is blatant vandalism and puts unnecessary pressure on the emergency services and would ask members of the public to pass on any information to the police. The blaze, which saw the bench burn to the ground and the area surrounding destroyed, has been commented on social media by concerned residents who says that the grounds have been used by adults and children to walk and exercise during lockdown. Local councillor John Molyneux said, It's really sad to see this happening, especially as the school has been welcoming people using its grounds during the lockdown period. However, it's heartening to see such a positive and compassionate response from the school community, including redoubling their efforts to reach out to young people who are struggling with lockdown. And that piece was by Heather Carrick. Top stars leaving St Myrne. St Myrne have confirmed a raft of top players will leave the club at the expiry of their contracts. Major first team stars including Stephen McGinn, Tony Andrew, Danny Mullen and Gary McKenzie will all leave the simple digital arena when the furlough scheme is concluded. Goalkeeper Vaclav Ladke was offered a new contract by the club. However, he has also chosen to refuse the deal and leave Paisley. The club have confirmed that they hope Ryan Flynn will sign a new contract, but Ross Wallace and Cody Cook will depart. Jim Goodwin, the manager, said, It has been really difficult to have to say goodbye to those players especially in the current circumstances. However, the opportunity to support the players through the close season is one the club felt was important. It goes without saying that everyone at the club wishes all of them the very best for the future. The full list of departing players is Stephen McGinn, Danny Mullen, Gary McKenzie, Ross Wallace, Tony Andrew, Cody Cook, Owen Yorkiv, Vaclav Ladke, Akin Fami Wo, whose loan has expired, Callum Waters, loan expired, Lee Hodson, loan expired, Alex Jakubiak, loan expired, Sifedin Chabi, loan expired. From the Glasgow Times, the Wednesday the 3rd of June 2020, from the news section, how Glasgow's deep-rooted drug problem isn't just affecting the train-spotting generation, by Stuart Patterson, political correspondent. An ageing population of problem drug users has been replaced by thousands of younger men and women addicted to Class A drugs.
There is many as 20,000 problem drug users in Glasgow, according to a report. The study using social work reports, details of admissions to hospital and numbers who are registered with services has estimated there to be 19,399 men and women with a serious addiction to illegal drugs. More than half, around 13,000, are using opioids like heroin and benzodiapines like Valium and fake street Valium known as Blues. Across Scotland it is estimated there are 95,000 problem users. We're only looking at opiates like heroin and benzodiazepines. The estimated across Scotland is around 57,000. The majority are in the age group of 35 to 64. It is often referred to as the transporting generation who were using drugs in the early 90s. However, the statistics show thousands who were not even born at that time and any thought of heroin addiction and drug-related deaths being a problem among older drug users who first took the drug in the 1980s and 1990s can be dispelled by the figures for younger people. The Scotland Wise statistics show that there are around 15,000 men and women aged 25 to 34 who are problem Class A drug users. Even more worrying is the number of 15 to 24 year olds born between 1996 and 2005 who are categorised as problem drug users. There are almost 6,000 in that age group and the vast majority are male, with around 1,100 females. The number could be higher since the study was carried out. There has been an explosion in so-called street blues on the city streets and present in many of the city's drug deaths. In Glasgow, the overall number of problem opioid and benzos drug users is around 12,800. Cocaine has another 1,000 to the total and cannabis another 6,000. The total represents around 1 in 5 of every problem drug users in Scotland is in Glasgow. Glasgow had the highest number of drug deaths in 2018, the last year for the available figures, when 290 people died in the city. Figures for 2019 were due to be released within weeks, but have been delayed and are not expected this year as a result of a dispute over laboratory services in Glasgow. The figure was expected to be far higher and could reach 400 in the city, according to the anecdotal evidence. And that piece was by Stuart Patterson. Article from Glasgow Times, Thursday, 4th of June, 2020. Lifestyle. Frankie and Benny's, why a large number of branches will be shut for good. A large number of Frankie and Benny's branches are to stay closed permanently after lockdown, after certain sites were deemed no longer viable to trade due to the pandemic. The restaurant group, TRG, who own Frankie and Benny's, is one of the biggest restaurant operators in Britain and also owns the popular restaurants Chiquito and Wagamama. In February this year, TRG announced plans for the closure of up to 90 Frankie's and Benny's and Chiquito branches by the end of 2021, with the intention of converting 12 of these sites into Wagamama outlets. What have bosses of Frankie and Benny's told staff? TRG bosses sent an email on Wednesday, June the 3rd to staff in the group's leisure division stating that a large number of sites will remain closed permanently. 
The email blamed the ongoing pandemic for creating financial issues. It said, The COVID-19 crisis has significantly impacted our ability to trade profitably, so we've taken the tough decision to close these restaurants now. Due to the pandemic, TRG had to place roughly 22,000 of its staff on the government's furlough scheme. However, many will now face redundancy. Addressing the future of staff jobs, the email said, Unfortunately, unless there are any suitable alternative roles identified, it's likely that your role will be made redundant. Which restaurants will be affected? It is currently not known which sites will be affected, or how many. However, managers at over 200 Frankie and Benny's restaurants were all sent the email explaining the closures. The restaurant chain owns 236 sites in the UK which may be affected by the recently announced closures. Some of these locations include the UK's biggest cities such as London, Manchester, Leeds, Cardiff, Glasgow and Newcastle. Which other chains have closed? At the end of March, TRG fell into administration and permanently closed the majority of its Tex-Mex Chiquito restaurants at the onset of lockdown. These closures were believed to have cost around 1,500 people their jobs. In addition to this, the group decided to close all of its London-based food and fuel pubs. Currently, its other restaurant chains, which include TRG concessions Bruning and Price, Coast to Coast, Firejacks, Joe's Kitchen and Garfunkel's are temporarily closed as per the government's coronavirus lockdown measures. Lockdown saw several other brands fall into administration earlier this year in March, such as Italian restaurant chain Carluccio's. Carluccio's had roughly 100 branches and over 2,000 members of staff who were made redundant due to the pandemic. Rangers anticipating early August date for Europa League rematch. Rangers hope to learn later this month when the second leg of their Europa League last 16 tie with Bayer Leverkusen will go ahead, but are anticipating an early August fixture. The match in Germany was postponed back in March due to the coronavirus outbreak and football shutdown. Steven Gerrard's team lost the first leg 3-1 to the Bundesliga club at Ibrox. UEFA have still to confirm how the Champions League and Europa League will be concluded this season, but a final eight tournament in Lisbon has been mooted. Speaking to Rangers TV, Rangers managing director Stuart Robertson said, we are still waiting to hear from UEFA as to when we will be playing the second leg of the Bayer-Leverkusen tie. The indications are early August, but we have not had that confirmed. There is a UEFA Executive Committee meeting mid-June, on June 17, and we are hoping to hear then. That hopefully will also confirm the details of the Europa League qualifiers for next season. It will be great to get those dates confirmed as well and then we can start properly planning for what we are going to do. It looks as though the League Cup is going to be moved back to October-November time 
It's not been confirmed yet, but that is the latest. Robertson confirmed the Ibrox Club were preparing for training to resume on June 15. The guys are itching to come back, he said. The plans have been progressing well. Ross Wilson, the sporting director, and the medical team have got really extensive plans in place for when the players come back. We are hoping to be back on or around June 15. Chris McQueer, racism is a disease, we must eradicate it. An article published in the Evening Times of the 4th of June 2020. It's been incredibly sad over the past few days to see the responses to people posting the Black Lives Matter hashtag on social media. But all lives matter, people scream back at them. Of course, all lives do matter, but right now we have a community of people who are being oppressed, vilified and killed only because of the colour of their skin, and we need to do everything we can to amplify their voices and stand up to racism. Black Lives Matter isn't about taking rights away from white people or anything like that. It's about equality. It's not a hard concept to grasp. There's a good analogy for this to make it even more simple. Imagine two houses sitting next to each other. One is on fire and one is not. The owner of the non-burning house asks the people putting out the fire why they're doing it. Well, doesn't my house matter, they ask. Aye, of course it does, but this one is on fire and needs our help. Looking across at what's happening in the United States, it's easy for us to say things like, that would never happen here, or at least Scotland isn't racist. But we do see it here. How many of us have had a relative or a pal make an offhand racist comment? How many times have we pulled them up for it? How many times have you heard a fellow supporter, regardless of what team you support, shout something racist at the football? Racism is everywhere, no matter how much we try and ignore it. And that's the thing, we can't ignore it anymore. A lot of the ignorance towards the real level of racism in this country is down to, in my opinion, a real lack of education. I don't remember ever being taught about real extent of Britain's role in the slave trade. I remember being taught about the US Civil Rights Movement, but not about the UK movement. I remember being taught about colonialism, but those involved were explorers and settlers rather than stealing land and resources from indigenous people, then brutally killing them. But that doesn't mean we have to be ignorant forever. There's nothing stopping us from reading up or watching videos and documentaries about these things. Through understanding the mistakes and downright atrocities of the past, we can learn and build a better society now. Nobody is born racist. Racist behaviour is learned and it needs to be stamped out. 
It's important that issues of race and equality are taught in schools so that children develop their own awareness of what injustice looks like. Learning these values as a young person will stand them in good stead as they take these values and their sense of right and wrong into adulthood and it benefits everyone in society as a result. Take a look at your bookshelf and see how many books you have by black writers. I imagine most people's answer would be the same as mine, not enough. A good book to start with if you want to educate yourself a bit more about racism in the UK is Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo Lodge. Among other things in the book, she digs into eradicated black history and the link between race and class. A lot of my pals are wondering, what can we do to help just now? And feeling like they'll be laughed at for sharing anti-racist stuff on social media, or that they'll be seen as social justice warriors, or are worried people... Uh, will think they're doing it for the wrong reasons, like they're only saying and sharing these things to make themselves look good. If you feel like you don't know what to say just now that will be helpful regarding the murders of black people in America, about police brutality, about George Floyd, about the protests, then you don't have to say anything. But we can and should share the words of people who do. If you can spare a couple of quid to support the Black Lives Matter cause, then please consider doing so. Even a pound or two will help. A quick Google search of Black Lives Matter places to donate will bring up a big list of organisations you can support and petitions you can sign. And as well, like I said earlier, we should all be educating ourselves, challenging our own misconceptions about race, standing up to racism in all its forms, wherever and whenever we see it, and helping to make the world a fairer and better place for everyone. Racism is endemic. It is a real problem that won't go away overnight. It is a disease, and people are dying from it. We need to do what we can to eradicate it. Article from Glasgow Times Thursday, 4th of June, 2020 Lifestyle QMU sacks 31 members of furloughed staff Exclusive by Carla Jenkins, Facebook community reporter a leading trade union has blasted the Queen Margaret Union for firing part-time staff before summer rather than furloughing them. Many staff are students, so are unable to claim universal credit and do not receive loan payments. Brian Simpson, industrial organiser for Unite Hospitality, said the QMU had every opportunity to avoid termination of staff and their attempts at justification were morally repugnant. He said... They could absolutely have continued to furlough them under the job retention scheme. Instead, they chose to sack 31 loyal workers. They have tarnished their reputation as a progressive institution and our members and their students will not forget it. Alice Walker, 21, from Thornley Bank, has worked in the QMU for three years. 
She found out she lost her job in the QMU cafe by email on Monday. The microbiology student said, I loved my job. It didn't seem like a job to me. For two years, I loved working at the QMU until new management came in this last year. I struggled to get my usual 15 hours, yet the CEO's family members were hired as full-time staff. I have worked for the last two summers as staff, so it wasn't just a term-time job. I feel like the university has turned its back on me. I haven't spoken to my line manager since sometime in March. I have graduated this year and it's left a sour taste in my mouth. I was thinking of applying for a master's at the university, but I'll never go into the QMU again. Current QMU President Courtney Hughes said, To continue to furlough staff would have serious financial implications for us in the future. It was no longer a viable option for the union to continue furloughing staff. With the union looking at seriously reduced income levels for some time, we are already considering a number of ways we can save money to ensure the long-term sustainability of the union. With student contracts at an end, no guarantee of us being able to offer future employment and the consideration of serious financial implications, the board made the difficult decision not to extend the contracts of our part-time staff. We would like to highlight that it was a difficult decision to make and we would like to thank our staff for their contribution to the union and wish them well. Amer Anwar, former rector of Glasgow University, said, I am so angry at the treatment of staff at both the student unions. It is shoddy, outrageous and a total abuse of all the principles our university claims to stand up for. It is the staff and students who give our university its heart and soul, not billion-pound building projects. I am fearful that if student unions can treat workers in such a manner, then who is next in the firing line? Glasgow's Health Board to introduce out-of-hours appointment system. Patients who turn up at emergency out-of-hours GP centres in Glasgow will now be turned away if they do not have an appointment. NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde is to introduce a referral system for evening emergency cases following on from a number of other Scottish health boards. Patients must call NHS 24 first and will be offered a telephone consultation or sent to one of the out-of-hours centres. Technology is also being rolled out to allow for video assessments to take place from the middle of June. The health board said the plan aims to reduce waiting times and ease pressure on the service, which is battling chronic GP shortages, as well as helping ensure social distancing can be observed to minimise the transmission of coronavirus. The board said patient transport will be available to take people to and from centres, while home visiting will still be an option for those who can't travel. Dr Kerry Nealon, Deputy Medical Director for Primary Care at NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde said, With all patients being channeled through NHS 24 as a first point of contact, we can ensure they are directed to the most appropriate type of care 
within the right environment at the right time. The way we access urgent primary care is changing and the new system underpins a wider exercise to ensure the whole of Greater Glasgow and Clyde has access to a safe, reliable and sustainable GP out-of-hours service which maximises resources and technology to deliver high-quality, person-centred care. Article from Glasgow Times, Thursday 4th of June 2020 Lifestyle From Raising and Raiding of Monasteries and Abbeys to Regent Mary's Death by Hamish Macpherson. Like every other part of Scotland in 1559-60, Glasgow was caught up in the fervour of the Reformation. For reasons that will become clear shortly in this series, it is instructive to look at how Glasgow was prospering in the 1550s. The trade guilds were now well established, and while the city was still much smaller than Edinburgh in terms of population, Glasgow was punching above its weight. Herring fisheries on the west coast and the city's own well-developed tanning and fleshing leather industries brought in wealth and the university and cathedral were still major economic assets in their own rights. Crucially, the importance of the River Clyde to Glasgow's trade was being increasingly recognised and there are records of people being paid to establish huts at Dumbuck near Dumbarton for workers whose job was to deepen the Clyde and keep sandbanks from forming that would block the shipping going up and down the river. Yet it was the religious upheaval that dominated life in the city. After John Knox's famous fire and brimstone preaching at Perth, no church property could be considered safe from the reformers. As we saw last week, most of the Protestant lords of congregation, including the former regent James Hamilton, now the Duke of Chatelarot, as well as the Earls of Argyle and Glencairn, plus Lords Boyd and Ochiltree, took up residence in Glasgow Castle in November of 1559, while Knox and his reforming clergy posted themselves in St Andrews, along with Chatelarot's son, the Earl of Arran. Glasgow was now one of the main centres of the Reformation in Scotland, and paid for it with the loss of buildings and treasures. The Protestant lords either ordered or encouraged the raiding and sometimes the raising of monasteries and abbeys, including those of the Blackfriars, Dominicans, and the Greyfriars, Franciscans, who were the two main preaching orders located in Glasgow. Across the land, no Catholic church or establishment was safe. And as historians and archaeologists have proven, the reformers did immeasurable damage to the many treasures accumulated by the Catholic Church over centuries. These included art in the Renaissance style and church records, which, because clerics only kept them, were the written history of Scotland in the centuries between King David I and the Reformation. What an incalculable loss, one which is mourned by historians to this day, as there are whole periods of Scottish history that we know nothing about because of the zeal of the reformers in torching any writings found in the libraries of cloisters and chapels. Even Knox himself could see the reformers were going too far. He personally intervened to save Dundee's bishop's palace, but could do nothing about Schoon Abbey. He wrote in his History of the Reformation, 
on the morrow, some of the poor, in hope of spoil, and some of the men of Dundee, to see what had been done, went up to the Abbey of Schoon. The bishop's servants were offended, and began to threaten and speak proudly, and as it was constantly affirmed, one of the bishop's sons stogged through with a rapier a man of Dundee for looking in at the ginnel door. The multitude, easily inflamed, gave the alarm, and the abbey and palace were appointed to sackage. They took no long deliberation in carrying out their purpose, but committed the whole to the merciment of fire. Perhaps because of his family's close attachment to it, the Duke of Châtelerault personally spared Glasgow Cathedral from destruction. But Archbishop James Beaton could see what was coming and prepared to evacuate his lodgings and the cathedral. Disaster for him and the Catholic Church in Scotland was now inevitable. In the first months of 1560, Regent Mary was growing sick and her reliance on French troops made her hugely unpopular. The lords in Glasgow, however, were only too happy to get English support for their cause, and in Queen Elizabeth they found a willing ally. The lords now had an army of 8,000 skilled and motivated fighters who were inspired to fight for Protestantism as well as the plunder they hoped to make from Catholic institutions. On January 1560, they also had massive naval support as Elizabeth sent a large contingent of her fleet to the Firth of Forth. The French retreated to Leith, but the following month the Lords signed the Treaty of Berwick, which saw an English army come north to help in the siege of Leith. On the 10th of June, 1560, Regent Mary succumbed to her long illness. Knox could not help but gloat. She had formally avowed that, in despite of all Scotland, the preachers of Jesus Christ should either die or be banished the realm. She was compelled not only to hear that Jesus Christ was preached, and all idolatry openly rebuked, and in many cases suppressed, but also she was constrained to hear one of the principal ministers within the realm, Knox himself? Shortly thereafter, she finished her unhappy life, Unhappy, we say, for Scotland, from the first day she entered into it to the day she departed this life. With Regent Mary gone, the Counter-Reformation collapsed. The French soldiers went home. They took with them a most unhappy man, Archbishop James Beaton of Glasgow. He had been well warned as to the fate that awaited him and all the churches of the Glasgow Diocese, and now he acted taking all the archives and riches that he had removed from Glasgow Cathedral and other churches in the city, on a ship to France, where Catholicism was, and still would remain, the dominant religion. Beaton took up residence in Paris and gifted many of the items he had preserved from Glasgow, at first to the Carthusian Monastery in the French capital, and afterwards he handed over the archives of his diocese to the Scots College in Paris, which had been founded with King Robert the Bruce's blessing in 1326 as the Collegium Scoticum. Beaton should have sent them to the Scots College in Rome, where they could have been saved in the Vatican archives. For after the French Revolution, most of these Glasgow documents were burned when the college was sacked in 1792. Next week, we'll see how Glasgow played an important role at the moment of Reformation and during the reign of Mary, Queen of Scots.
Mike Daly, Tenants Should Have the Right to Seek Lower Rent. An article by Mike Daly, published in the Evening Times of the 4th of June, 2020. Today, the Fair Rents Scotland Bill was introduced and published in the Scottish Parliament. It's a Members' Bill by Glasgow MSP Pauline McNeill that seeks to protect private renters by introducing measures to limit and control rent increases in a fair and measured way. It's long overdue. We've not had anything like this for over a century in the UK. I've spent a good chunk of my lockdown time drafting the bill and various accompanying documents, working with Pauline and her team, my colleagues at Govan Law Centre and the Parliament's legislation team. It's been a real pleasure working with everyone involved and it's a great team success to get this far so quickly. I think we've produced something that is proportionate, socially just, targeted and capable of attracting cross-party support. A contribution to a much-needed wider solution to help protect many of the most vulnerable Scots adversely affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. At present, the law on rent levels and increases is a one-way cul-de-sac that benefits landlords. Under the Private Housing Tenancies Scotland Act 2016, a landlord can put your rent up once every year. As a tenant, you are immediately on the back foot. You have a right to try and argue for the status quo. That's a bit like asking the tide not to come in. In practice, rents just go up and keep going up. Every year at double the rate of inflation if you live in the central belt of Scotland, the average rent for a two-bedroom flat in Greater Glasgow is £780 per month. In the Edinburgh and the Lothians it is £972. Compare that to the average rent of a similar housing association flat, 354 from the GHA in Glasgow, or a council flat, £447 for the equivalent-sized flat from Edinburgh City Council. All too often you get double the price but half the quality in the private rented sector compared to a council or housing association home. For many Scots there is zero choice. You can't vote with your feet because you have no other option. You can't get a house in the social rented sector nor can you access a mortgage. It's Hobson's choice and a never-ending story of higher rents. Since around 1965, a fair rent in the UK has meant a purely open market one in law. Private sector rents go up in a neighbourhood, so it's legally fair that you have to pay an inflation-busting hike in your monthly rent. That's the market, one direction of travel. The tenant is the end user who picks up the tab even if they are the least able to do so. The Coronavirus Scotland Act 2020 has only kicked an impending avalanche of evictions down the road. 
The provisions which extend eviction notices to six months and make mandatory grounds of eviction discretionary will all be repealed on the 30th of September, unless extended. In the central belt of Scotland, the private rented sector is an overheated market that needs to be cooled down. Pauline's bill would do this by capping the future rent increases to no more than inflation plus 1% each year. This amount could be lowered or increased by the Parliament subject to different provisions for different circumstances. It's a flexible solution. Price caps are not unusual in the UK. The energy regulator Ofgem has the power to cap energy prices. The UK minimum wage is a wage floor cap. In 2015, HM Treasury allowed the Financial Conduct Authority to introduce a price cap for short-term credit to tackle the excessive profits being made on payday loans and the over-indebtedness of consumers with repeated rollover of loans. Why shouldn't a tenant have a right to seek a lower rent? The bill would empower a tenant to apply to the rent officer or first-tier tribunal on appeal once each year for a lower rent to be fixed. A lower rent would have to be set where the condition or quality of the property was poor. This would include poor energy efficiency for heating and an inadequate standard of furnishings and decor. This would help create an incentive for landlords to provide better value for money for tenants. It isn't just younger people or those in the gig economy who end up as unwilling private renters. The number of older people in the private rented sector have doubled in the past 18 years. A recent Scottish Widows report revealed that future retirees will be spending 42% of their pension income on private rents. Unless the Scottish Parliament embraces Pauline's bill, Scotland will continue to fail private renters when it comes to social justice, equality and fairness. From the Glasgow Times, Friday the 5th of June 2020. From the news section, Allender Park cordoned off as police investigate unexplained death. Article by Hamish Morrison. The body of a man found in a park has sparked an investigation. A man was sadly found dead in Allender Park and police are puzzling how he, got, how he died and who he was. Police and ambulance were called at 11.30am on Thursday to the Mogai Park and pronounced the man dead. The area has been cordoned off and officers are trying to carry out inquiries as to the man's cause of death and his identity. A police spokesman said, Around 11.30am on Thursday, June 4th, 2020, officers were called to Allender Park in Mogai. Police and ambulance attended and a man has been pronounced dead. The area has been cordoned off and officers are currently carrying out inquiries to establish more information surrounding the death and to establish his identity. A post-mortem will be carried out in due course to establish the exact cause of death, however it is currently being treated as unexplained. A full report will be sent to the Procurator Fiscal.
And that piece was by Hamish Morrison. Scotland starlet Fraser Hornby set to complete £1.8 million switch from Everton. Scotland under-21 internationalist Fraser Hornby is set to complete a £1.8 million switch from Everton to Stade de Rheims. French newspaper L'Equipe have reported that the 20-year-old is in advanced talks with the League One outfit and will join them when the summer transfer window opens. Hornby, who spent the second half of last season on loan with Belgian side Kortkrijk, scoring four goals in 14 appearances, is expected to sign a four-year contract. Hornby joined Everton from Northampton Town in the summer of 2014 in a £65,000 deal. He starred in the youth ranks before making his senior debut for the Toffees in a 3-0 Europa League victory against Apollon Limassol on December 7, 2017. Hornby has been capped 13 times for Scotland's under-21 side, scoring six goals and is considered one of the national side's brightest young attacking options. From the Glasgow Times, date Friday the 5th of June 2020, from the news section. Boy, 15, sexually assaulted by man at Clybank bus stop. Article by L. Duffy, social media journalist. A 15-year-old boy has been sexually assaulted at a bus stop in Clydebank. The young boy was at the terminus at Chambers Street at around 11.20pm on Monday, June 1st, when he was approached by a man. The man began talking to the boy before going on to sexually assault him. Although physically unhurt, the victim is said to be shocked. Police are now searching for the suspect, who the boy saw board a number 60 bus and leave the area after the incident. He is described as black, 5 foot 10 inches in height and is aged in his late 20s. He is said to have spoken English with a foreign accent. At the time of the incident, he was wearing a black baseball cap, a grey spotted t-shirt with white in the shoulder, dark coloured bottoms and an earring within the left ear. He was also carrying a black backpack with a water bottle with the side compartment which was wrapped within a plastic bag. The boy was shot but physically unhurt by the incident, said the detective sergeant Bernadette Wall. He moved away from the man and watched him get on board the number 60 bus and leave the area. We've been carrying out inquiries to establish the identity of the man and we would appeal to anyone who may know who the man is to get in touch with Police Scotland on 101, quoting 4885 of June 1st. And that piece was by L. Duffy. Celtic and Ross County, only Scottish Premiership clubs to pay for coronavirus testing equipment. Scottish Premiership clubs have been given the green light to return to training from next week 
and with the new season expected to start on August the 1st, top flight teams are beginning preparations for the return of their staff and players. But reports this morning have suggested that just Celtic and Ross County have splashed out on coronavirus testing equipment. The daily record say teams in Scotland's top division will have to spend at least £5,000 a week just to enable their players to get back to training this month. On top of that, testing machines are believed to be valued at around £35,000. The other 10 clubs in the Premiership are now being urged to take action ahead of a return to training. SFA Chief Executive Ian Maxwell and Hamden Medic Dr John McLean have been offering advice ahead of the proposed start-up next Thursday. It is understood clubs have been given a number of options to access crucial testing machines and keep the cost of returning to action to a minimum. From the Glasgow Times, date Friday the 5th of June 2020, from the news section, Campsie Glen, youths arrested for theft, drugs and assault. This article is an exclusive by Hamish Morrison. Four youths were arrested after hundreds flocked to Campsie Glen for theft, drug use, assault and possession of an offensive weapon. Three males, aged 17, 18 and 25, were arrested in Lennox Town on Sunday evening for a variety of offences including theft, assault and drug use, a police spokeswoman confirmed. A 16-year-old boy was then arrested for possessing a baseball bat on Monday as youth fought to the popular Eastern Bardenshire beauty spot for large gatherings which saw over 200 people dispersed by officers in a 48-hour period. Speaking to the Scottish Sun, Eastern Bartonshire's Chief Inspector Lorna Gibson said, Over the past 48 hours we've dispersed more than 200 people from Camp to Glen and four males have been arrested for various alleged offences. On Monday night we required assistance from additional resources to deal with the large crowds of people who had travelled from out with the local area to congregate at Camp to Glen. We witnessed countless groups of youth not following the Scottish Government's regulations. Engaging in antisocial behaviour and being involved in criminality will not be tolerated. She added, Please consider whether your journey is necessary before travelling to places where you are likely to be turned away. The volume of people coming into this area cannot be sustained safely. We told how youth from in and around Glasgow had travelled to the rural spot in defiance of Scottish Government guidelines after photos emerged of teenagers crammed together in, front of, in the front of a bus and enjoying the good weather in close quarters over the last weekend. Police pledged to increase patrols in the area. And that article is an exclusive by Hamish Morrison. Celtic goalkeeper Craig Gordon targeted by St Murn, despite being offered a new hoops deal. Celtic goalkeeper Craig Gordon is reportedly a target of St Mirren. The Scotland international is out of contract this summer 
and despite being offered a new deal, it is understood he is contemplating a future away from the hoops. It is believed that the buddies have put a deal on the table for Gordon, and reports suggest Jim Goodwin is keen to secure his services after Vaclav Ladke departed the club earlier this week. The 37-year-old Gordon faces an uncertain future at Celtic, with Neil Lennon hoping to land Fraser Foster on a permanent deal. A deal hasn't been struck just yet, and as a result, the Parkhead Club offered Gordon a new deal, with Scott Bain the only first-team keeper under contract. The one-time £9 million man is keen to get playing on a regular basis with a spot in Steve Clark's Scotland squad at the forefront of his mind. Hearts were interested in bringing Gordon back to Tynecastle in the January window, and Huddersfield were also monitoring his situation. A number of other clubs are understood to be plotting a swoop for Gordon ahead of the start of the new season. From the Glasgow Times, it's Friday the 5th of June 2020, from the news section, Glasgow Airport on EU Aviation Safety Agency Risk List, article by Hamish Morrison. Glasgow Airport is on an EU list of high-risk airports requiring extra safety measures for passengers. Glasgow and several other UK airports are on a list compiled by the European Union Aviation Sp Safety Agency, which assesses the risk of contracting and spreading coronavirus to passengers on aircraft. The list, which is effective from today, recommends that, e that airports in major cities across the UK implement additional safety measures, including the disinfection of aircraft on data, including the number of cases in an area and the rate of testing. Glasgow is one UK airport, along with Luton, Heathrow, Birmingham and Manchester, which have been recommended to implement an extra layer of protection to ensure the safety of passengers and aircrews. It comes amid reports that EU countries are considering creating air bridges to create agreements between countries that their citizens can fly between one another for tourism. The list notes that the, the risk category is not intended to suggest travel restrictions or other public health measures at a country level. We reported in April how flights from Glasgow Airport were down 97% due to the coronavirus lockdown. And that article was by Hamish Morrison. Christopher Julian says, Odson Edward is at one of the biggest clubs in Europe. I hope he stays at Celtic. Christopher Julian last night expressed hope that Odson Edward will remain at Celtic next season and help the Parkhead club make history and complete 10 in a row. Centre-half Julian has struck up a friendship with his fellow Frenchman since moving to Glasgow in a £7 million transfer from Toulouse last June. The 22-year-old has attracted interest from England and across Europe after scoring 28 goals in all competitions 
for the Scottish champions in the 2019-20 season. But his countryman is optimistic the striker will remain at Celtic for at least another season and help Neil Lennon's men win a record 10th consecutive title. He said, I speak with Odson a lot. We are friends. I know how good Celtic is for him and how happy he is right now. I don't know what's going to happen, but personally, I think he is at one of the best clubs in Europe. We will see what happens, but I hope everything is going to be fine for next season. Julian was pleased to see Edward and Celtic midfielder Callum McGregor receive nominations for the Scottish Football Writers Association Footballer of the Year Award. The defender believes both men deserve to receive the honour, but he is hoping that his compatriot gets a nod from the nation's scribes. We have had so many important players this season, but I hope the award goes to Odson or Callum, he said. Odson has been huge for us. He scored so many goals, but he gives more than that to the team. His all-round game is fantastic. He holds the ball in for us, he controls the tempo, and he gives us so much with his dribbling and skills. Odson is just huge for the club, and we are so happy to have him. From the Classical Times, date Friday the 5th of June 2020, from the news section, revealed... Here are the Glasgow sport venues set to reopen. Article by Drew Sanderlands, local democracy reporter. Glasgow Life has revealed which sports facilities it plans to open first, as lockdown restrictions are slowly lifted. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon announced outdoor exercise adhering to distancing measures and non-contact activities such as golf could return last week. No date has been provided for when Glasgow Life the City Council's sporting and leisure arm will reopen its venues as it works to ensure visitors can be kept safe. But Knightswood and Latham Hill golf courses, Kelvin Grove, Queen's Park and Drumchapel Tennis and Kelvin Grove, Queen's Park and Knightswood Bowls will return in Phase 1. Risk assessments are currently being carried out and more staff will be working to ensure social distancing when the venues are open again. A spokesman for Glasgow Life said, The global COVID-19 pandemic has required a reassessment of how people use and access sports facilities in order to keep everyone safe. Glasgow Life is working as quickly as possible to put in a number of new systems to allow people to enjoy these public facilities. These include ensuring appropriate staff training, booking processes and cleaning, and maintenance regimes, and Glasgow Life is carrying out required risk assessments before opening facilities. He added, we expect the venue opening will be phased and appreciate everyone's patience. All venues will have increased levels of staff when they reopen to ensure government guidance and social distancing is followed. In line with government guidance, Glasgow Life suspended all its services at the close of play on Tuesday, March 17th. All Glasgow Club membership fees were automatically frozen and museums, libraries and concert halls were closed. Only in workouts were introduced. By May the 7th, over 120,000 home workouts have been completed 
and the Glasgow Club app have been downloaded thousands of times since lockdown began. Glasgow Club video content has been viewed over 100,000 times on Facebook and YouTube. The organisation's online library services has seen more than 2,500 people register and e-book issues increased by more than 50%, with almost 8,000 issues in one month. Audiobook use has also continued to rise week on week, with almost 5,000 having been accessed from the previous four weeks, while in the same period, more than 10,000 DE magazines were downloaded. And that piece was by Drew Sanderlands. And that was this week's Glasgow Times. Thanks for listening.